0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, good morning. better. I don't know why I'm even looking over. There's nobody over there. Last Sunday, um, we started a mini-series, what I think is going to be a three-part series. And the thrust of this series is a call to the unity of the church. And I think that matters because, like I just prayed, we're living in a really divided country. Now, I don't know if, if it's accurate what I just said, that We've never been this divided before because this nation once had a civil war. So we've been pretty divided before as a nation. But I'll tell you, right now, it feels like unity is just a word in most places. At the friendship level, the family level, the school level, the neighborhood level, it's really hard to find any real meaningful kind of unity in the United States today. And I think that unity is not so easy for human beings to experience. That in order for us to experience unity, it's not just some commonality at the human level, but real unity requires something mystical, supernatural, and without that happening, I believe that unity between human beings is impossible. Last week we learned, I hope we learned, (laughs) that in the church, the unity we're supposed to experience can only happen if it's a spiritual unity. That what binds us together as a church is not a commonness in our ethnicity or our generation or socioeconomics. The only chance we have to experience unity in the church is a shared experience of having a real relationship with Jesus Christ. If that isn't what we have in common, we really have nothing in common that will last and produce the kind of unity we keep hearing about in the Bible. And so if you're feeling disconnected from others around you in the church, if you're feeling like you're physically here but your heart is not here, it may be because relationships broke along the way. But I want to challenge you, probably at the heart of this feeling of disconnection, is that first somewhere along the way you became disconnected from your Savior as well. That at some point you just stopped trying or caring that the pursuit of God came to a standstill because in your heart you feel like God's failed you and so you're not going to chase him anymore. Apart from a relationship with Jesus, there is no bridge for us to cross to one another in this place. So that was what we learned last week. This week we're going to look at verses 3 and 4 of the same passage. We're going to see that there is something that stands as a great obstacle to unity. And that obstacle is selfishness. Selfishness is like cyanide to relationships. And probably right now in your life, somewhere, there is a broken relationship or one that is breaking, a relationship that's supposed to be here but feels like it's here. And somewhere in that breakdown, I guarantee you, if you look honestly enough, you will find selfishness rearing its ugly head. Selfishness is one of the most putrid qualities of the human heart. Nobody likes a selfish person, but it's really hard to spot it when you're the one who's the selfish person. Did you ever notice that? It's like bad breath. You're walking around all day enjoying your own breath, thinking whatever, and then someone comes near you to go, oh, or just they throw up in their mouth a little, and you go, like, oh, "My breath smells terrible." But I've been breathing it all day, and I was the last to know how foul my breath really is. I think selfishness is just like that. You could be so ugly, so hard to be around, and still be the last person around you to realize that's how you are. But selfishness pushes people away. It divides everyone, even people who are related by DNA. Blood cannot overcome selfishness. So unless God intervenes and does something about selfishness, every relationship in your life is doomed. It's done for. You cannot save it unless God intervenes and does something supernatural about selfishness. So I want to look at the passage today, and the title of the message is Getting Over Ourselves. I was going to put a space between our and selves, but I thought you guys would all accuse me of not knowing English. But the truth is, It's not just get over yourself like stuff, but it's really yourself, this idea of me taking such priority is what we have to get over, and we can't get over it on our own power. So we're going to look at Philippians 2, 3 to 4. Here's what the word of God says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And the opening lines of this passage cannot be clearer. He says, do nothing. And here's the problem, I think, that we often experience in the church. Okay? We read phrases like, do nothing, and our eyes and our brains register, but what we're really hearing is, try not to do a lot of things. We, we have this tendency in the church to hear emphatic statements from God's word and then soften the blow so we can live with what he's saying. <laughs> Isn't that the natural tendency? Like when, when you tell your kids, take out the garbage, and they just sit there. And you're like, well, and the, oh, you mean now? Yes, yes, now. I didn't mean when you feel like it. I mean when I actually bother to say it. That's when I expect a response. And yet, it's human nature to want not to be burdened by things. To not want to be pushed into uncomfortable places or have anyone else be the boss of me. In the English, or in the Greek, that word do is not even there. It's added to make sense in English. But the Greek is even more sweeping that, nothing out of selfishness or conceit. Meaning in the Christian's life, there is no valid place for selfish ambition or conceit. That if that's underneath As a motivator for anything you say or think or do or feel, it is an offense to God and it is beneath what he has called us to be. That there is no redeeming form of selfishness or pride. It just doesn't belong anywhere in the life of those who follow Jesus Christ. It's a very strong statement. And any attempt to soften the force of that statement will cause the seeds of division to form in your life. If you say, fine, but in my situation, selfishness is warranted because I did that whole forgive you, put you first thing for a really long time and I'm done. You don't get any more out of me. I've hit my limit of you centeredness. It's me time. And the truth is, your me time hasn't been terribly satisfying because you don't really want love from you. You've been doing it all your life. It makes you feel even lonelier when you realize, I'm the only one who loves me. It doesn't matter how angry or militant you get about it. When you're the only one left who loves you, it feels terrible. What we really crave is the love of God and the love of others. And at some point, we grow disillusioned and hurt and think it's not available to us. But the growing resentment and darkness and selfishness makes it even harder to achieve that kind of love between us and other people. Like, bear in mind that when he says do nothing from selfish ambition, ambition is not what he's condemning. Okay? I, I grew up hearing this every now and then in church, that we should have no ambition, no pride. And I heard it as Christianity is a faith for those who love stagnancy. And mediocrity and averageness. In fact, the goal of being a Christian is to always get like a 7.5 as your gymnastics score. And I'm thinking of my daughter Zoe. 7.5 is not a good gymnastics score. A C is not a good grade in school. Well, it might be for some. But the truth is that it's not ambition itself which God has a problem with. In fact, Paul himself, who's writing these words, will also write things like this. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it, with it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I, Paul, run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. The problem is not ambition, but it's selfish ambition. Here's what I think is meant by selfish ambition. In general, we have good feelings or goodwill towards God and towards other people. We don't wish harm. We feel generally kind of sad when bad things happen to our friends or neighbors, or even to strangers in other cities. When we hear bad news reports, it moves us. But in general, there's a big, big barrier between us and that world out there. And so I will have in general a goodwill towards God and man. But when you talk about beyond just a general positive or open posture to real ambition, planning, intentionality, investment, sacrifice, effort, Those things, if you really look at our lives, in in most people's lives, are mainly directed at their own benefit and the benefit of those that they call their own people. That's just the truth of it. That it's not ambition that is at issue, but that most of the expressions of ambition in our lives are about us. That it's rare to find people who have ambition for God or other people. And that's just the truth of it. And as a result, I think that uh, people are looking at the church and saying, what answers does the gospel have in a fractured world like ours? And as they look at our community, they're simply not finding the answers because the people for whom God gave up his life continue to live primarily for themselves. I think that's a great tragedy because I think the world is wondering, is there something in this world that can overcome the anger and division that marks our whole society? Is there a cure for the disease of selfishness? And it would stand to reason that if somebody gives up their life for another, that the person who benefits should be changed by that sacrifice, should realize what a gift they've been giving, and from that day forward, stop living only for themselves. Let me ask you a question. If the CEO of the company where you work were to say to your work group, your team, you know what, we're going to give you all a gift this year. We're going to release 100 free extra vacation days to your team. You guys discuss among yourselves and divvy up those extra 100 vacation days as you see fit. Just pause for a minute and think about that scenario. How great would that be? Especially if your work team is like mine, like like seven people, you know, eight people in... Dang, that's a lot of extra vacation days, but as you hear that and you begin contemplating the discussions and negotiations with your team, what is your prediction about what's going to happen there? And what's the first impulse that grabs your heart? How confident are you that the people on your team who really most need some extra days of paid time off will end up getting them? And how willing are you as an instinct to yield your claim to those days for the sake of someone else who needs them more than you do? Now, eventually, I think the thought would cross my mind, but I think what Paul's after is to say, what's the first thought that always comes into your mind when something good happens? When you have an opportunity or a blessing in view, what's the first impulse that grabs your heart? I know for me, Sadly, most of the time I think about how I'm going to benefit or how my family is going to benefit. We are, after all, tribal and we are mammalian. It is in our DNA to be selfish, right? Isn't that what one author said? In fact, there's even the selfish gene. But what Paul's saying is that if you've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, one of the signs that that has taken root is that at some point in our lives, we're going to experience that more and more, we begin to think of others even before ourselves. In fact, look what he says here. He says, don't look only to your own interests, meaning it's not sin to look to your own interests. Okay, I don't want to create a picture of Christianity where you never take care of yourself. Self-care is not a sin. It's a good thing. You should take care of yourself. Get some sleep. Eat well. Experience love, go on vacation, play a little. All those things are okay. What he says is, I don't have to instruct anybody to look to their own interests. That's happening 24-7. So he's saying, but also remember, look to the interests of others. In other words, the issue doesn't seem to be that we think of ourselves too much, but that we think of others too little. That seems to be what he's battling against. Is not that we think of ourselves too much. That's just natural. It's being human to think of yourself. But he says, in Christ, one of the things that must grow up in us is the instinct to think of others first. Don't just look at your own interest. And I want to illustrate this with a video clip that's my way of saying goodbye to two old friends who are abandoning our city. Would you guys play that clip for us? Oh. Inside for Joe Keen Noah. You see him get up in the air and hang, deciding who to pass it to. Wow. Welcome back, Derrick Rose, the former MVP, playing like an MVP here in the first half. He has 13 points and five assists. All right. I'm so happy I'm playing basketball tomorrow morning. When I see that, I get so hyped. The reason I'm showing that clip, the reason I'm showing that clip to you is because I think this idea of not looking to your own interest but also to the interest of others is so well illustrated by the assist in basketball. Whenever you see an assist, especially one that pretty, the person with the ball almost always is able to score if they really want to. They have control. It's usually a point guard. He's a a person who can score, who can drive. Usually, if you give that guy the ball, he could do something at least half the time with it and get all the glory for himself. And most of the time, an assist happens on a fast break where everybody's full of adrenaline, and we're all running three on two down the court. And if I wanted to, I could hog the ball and just go for it and try to draw contact or whatever. But then, out of your peripheral vision... You see one of your teammates, that six foot ten, just standing there waiting right under the basket, no one's on him, and the thought occurs to you either I could force the issue and try to make something happen, or I could get that guy the ball. And as I give him the ball and he puts that easy two points in the bucket, the commentators always say, What about a good assist? What's the one adjective they always use? Love to see that unselfish play. Unselfish play. The idea being that it's not just about your glory, but it's about your team and your city getting those two points. And that sometimes it matters more that you dish off the ball to another than that you score on your own. I think it's that idea. That if you study the pattern of your life, the question is, are you in life a ball hog? They're always you. Let let me give you another scenario. Imagine that you have, this is rare for me, like on a weekend, that I have an entire afternoon free. That happened yesterday. I had no appointments, no claims on my time. I had this magical situation where the entire day I could devote to things I've been wanting to do. I don't know what to do with myself. Now, I want you to imagine where your heart usually takes you when you get a gift like that. An entire afternoon or evening, no obligations, nobody's hassling you. Maybe everyone else is out of town, you have the house to yourself. That's like every, every married man's fantasy, right? Is that everyone leaves the house and no one's molesting me. I just, nobody's bothering me. I, just, I could just live like a caveman. Ah. And think about the little buffet of self-indulgence you set up for yourself. Maybe you are in a clothes-free zone for the rest of that weekend. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of it has to do with binge-watching your favorite show and having a buffet of really unhealthy snack foods, not doing a single dish, leaving all your dirty clothes on the floor, not making your... I don't know what you have planned, but when I get a free afternoon, my first impulse is, Oh, yes! It's Dave time. And the truth is that sometimes that is critically important, that we are in need of me time, that you got to take care of you from time to time. But there should be an alarm going off if every time you get a gift, it's your gift. It's always me time. And I think what Paul is trying to say is once in a while it's got to occur to you, I have a free afternoon. I wonder if there's someone in my life I care about who would benefit from my free afternoon. I wonder if there's a mom struggling with the need, a desperate need to get out of the house, to just have someone else take care of her kids for a few hours so she could be sane again. I wonder if there's somebody in our church who never gets called to go out, could really use a friend, somebody to go catch a movie or grab a meal. I wonder if there's somebody who's not doing well physically and could use a hand with some chores around the house. I wonder if my mom needs anything. And I'm not just talking about youth group students. I realized how little, as I've gotten older, I've thought about what my parents need. They're in their 70s. And i got to be honest with you, I need to think more often about what their life is like and how I might be able to help them from time to time in a practical way. It's natural to want to think of yourself first. But I think part of the disillusionment many of us have about this faith is that even though we know Jesus has given his life for us, we find it so easy to continue still living for ourselves first. And so he says, let there be nothing in our lives that emanates from selfish ambition. Now, so far, that's just a heavy message, and I haven't said anything about how you get out of that. Okay, we'll get there, but I want to at least establish the baseline of what it looks like to walk with Jesus in our lives. Uh, I think a second expression of selfishness is what he calls conceit. What is conceit? If you know a little Greek, this is one of the most interesting words in the Greek language. It's a word kenodoxia, which means empty glory, Empty glory. I think that is one of the best translations of conceit I could think of. It's glory that you think is so full of substance, but everyone else is <laughs> like, shh, don't laugh. He thinks he's awesome. Shh, just leave him be. And it's, it's like a person just, just walking around. I am the stuff, and the whole time his flies open. Strutting around thinking, everybody's laughing because they love me. Hey, what's up? (laughs) And the whole time it's because your fly's been open. That's the the idea, the, the comical idea of vain glory. It's a glory that's so empty because it's based not on a realistic assessment of your strengths and worth and value, but it's based on an inflated view of your worth and significance compared to other human beings. Last month, we, as a world, said goodbye to this man at the age of 74. And he was a darn good boxer. Nobody else got the heavyweight title three times like he did. I mean, he's incredible, right? He's really a good boxer. What do we call him? What was his nickname? The greatest. Do you know that's the nickname he gave himself? (laughs) I mean, you want to talk about one of the greatest self-promoters in human history, Muhammad Ali will go down in history as the greatest self-promoter of all time. Listen to some of these choices. There were so many. I don't know how to choose from them. But here's this one. I am the greatest. I'm the greatest thing that ever lived. I don't have a mark on my face. And I upset Sonny listen, And I just turned 22 years old. I must be the greatest. What do you say to something like that? Here's another one. It's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. Admit it. Some of us have said that in our own hearts. Come on. It's hard to be humble. And you know, in in a, a quote in his later life, one of the things he said was, I figured if I said it enough times, I could convince the world I am the greatest. Now, I doubt most of us are quite that full of ourselves. But the way that conceit often shows up in our lives is not in such an overt, self aggrandizing way but it often shows up in the way that we categorize people according to their significance. And the truth is, I think most of us, we do that. We look in a room full of people and say, I can't be equally valuing all of these people, so I've got to figure out who are mine, who are worth it, and who are those who are, you know what? God bless you. You're on your own. You don't belong to me. You're not one of mine. Let's go back to that free afternoon analogy let's say it happens to be a sunday afternoon when i have a sunday afternoon free i am giddy i, I just can't handle like, i'm so excited what am i going to do now imagine and this is a real life scenario that someone approaches you just before you're about to leave church and they ask you that question hey um are you busy this afternoon that's a loaded question Because they might be like, I just have some free jet skis to give away. I just wanted to know if you you want to take my jet skis. And you're like, yeah, I'm not not busy. But you don't know what it's going to be. It's like, could you help me move a piano? (laughs) So you just have no idea what's behind that question. Are you busy this afternoon? And you are so looking forward to me time, bubble bath, champagne. Season 8 of whatever show you're watching. And that person says that, and let's be honest, how do you do the calculus in your head before you answer? <laughs> and as you're doing it, let's be honest, for some of us, all of us, one of the ways we do that math is, are you worth this afternoon? And be was one set of friends, I'd be like, yeah, I'm not doing anything. What, what is it? What, what? I don't even care what it is because you're one of mine, and every time I've been with you, I've benefited. I've had fun. I've enjoyed myself. I felt good about my life. I've walked away with blessings. And so if it's you, it's always a yes because you have significance in my life. You have worth in my life. And if we're honest, the way I I, I, I arrived at that conclusion is because every time I'm around you, my life gets better. So you have worth to me because I have worth to you because you raise the goodness and welfare of my life. But what if it's somebody that you don't know that well, who's kind of needy, is a little complicated, is emotionally unstable, doesn't have a good sense of boundaries? See, I think what what God wants to say to us is, trust me a little bit. He's not saying that you have no authority over your own calendar, that you have to be subject to every request that comes in. But when a person begins to lean in and ask for a part of your life, and the primary way you make the decision is whether they're significant enough to deserve it or not, it is a pointer to something not right in our hearts. Because if there is a sovereign God, then once in a while he will impose upon you the life of another person you might not choose to connect with, but in, through whom and in whom he will do some of his greatest work in your life. I've been so surprised at how God has worked in my life when I found my mouth betraying my heart and saying yes to something I really didn't want to be committed to. There have been leadership roles I've been asked to take in organizations where, like, will you lead this? And I'm like, no. And my stupid mouth goes, yes. And my heart's the whole time screaming, no, you fool you don't care about this. And I, I walk into it with a bad attitude, but at the end of it, it is one of the things that God used most profoundly to reveal himself to me. There have been people in my life who have become like brothers and sisters who I would not have chosen to be friends with if it were up to me. But God kept laying it on their hearts to bother me with such persistence that I went, oh, God, yes, fine. And as I gave my life over, amazing things happened. And I realized whenever I'm the guardian of me, whenever the way that I decide is based on how I rank the significance and worth of other people, I will miss out on so much that God is trying to do. And at the end of the day, what that does is it creates for me a picture of the world that is filled with rank. There's a hierarchy, a pecking order, and that means by very definition, I don't live in a world of equals. Well, I say I do, but really some are more equal than others. So that in the church, even though we're all brothers and sisters, some of us get along better than others. And what God is saying is, let me decide who your family is. Let me decide who is your brother and who is your sister. Don't decide primarily by the worth you ascribe to that other person because if you really think about it in front of me, your heavenly father, are you not all the same? At the foot of the cross, can you make an argument that you have more worth than anyone else? To temper our conceit, we're told, not just to train ourselves for new behaviors or to pretend that others are more important, but to really think deeply about the truth and come to believe that that's true. That other people have great significance and worth and are deserving of our selflessness and of our lives. So let me, let me land this plane. I've got to end in a few minutes here. So I, I want to I bring this to a close. I want to just point out that these things that we've just said, they're not small things. I mean, God is not just shooting the breeze with us here. He, he's really asking some very heavy, profound things of us as his followers. How can he ask me to actually be more concerned about another person than I am about myself? What's, what's, where's the upside in that? How can he ask me to truly believe that others are more important than I am? And what makes it even more painful and challenging is that sometimes during a season of our lives, we know that our own needs are just being ignored by people around us. And that our, our lives are being undervalued by other people. So when you've done that faithful follower thing for a while, and you've tried to put others first, and there was no payoff, no reciprocation, Just the black hole of the selfishness of others, and the pain and and the seed of dark bitterness and resentment are growing in your heart. And you hear a message like this. I know that the question screaming in our hearts is How can anyone ask me right now in this life to put somebody else first? To be unselfish when that's all I've got left. If I don't care for me, no one will care for me. I'm not going to debate with you whether that's true or not. I know what it feels like to be in that place. Trust me, I know what it feels like to feel very alone. The question is, how can God ask? And the only answer I can offer you is, you'll find that answer at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the only place you're going to find the answer to how we can ever be unselfish. Next week, we'll look at this a little further, but look at the very next few verses, 6 through 8. And he says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. I know it's a very churchy thing to say, but here's the only truth I can offer you as a pastor. If you want to know how to get over yourself, the only place you can find that power is at the foot of this cross. It's where it all begins because it's the place where God says to each of us, whenever you look at me, whenever you think of me, whenever you pray to me, remember this place, this event, this gift I gave for you. It's the foundation of the relationship God has with each of us that there will never be a day in our lives when we can look at this God who hung on a cross and say, but you still owe me. I still have needs. You still have to do this in my life. We can't, we can do it apart from the cross, but there at his feet, it's impossible. Because what we see in that place is that he did the most incredible thing already. He has already demonstrated how deeply, fiercely loved we are. What incredible value each of us has in his eyes. He doesn't look at us as one of billions. He sees us. He knows our name. And if you're looking for the love of God in the circumstances of your life, in the health of your marriage, in the blessings and achievements of your children, you will not find it there. Your situation will go up and it will go down. But the love of God is not proven In the stock ticker of my life, it's proven at the foot of the cross. And if that's not enough, there's no other place to look. It's the only place to look. The pain and the emptiness in your heart, the longing that keeps growing, is not going to be filled anywhere but here. It's the only place. And I want you to pause and think about when the God who made you says, I laid down my life for you to show I love you, if the response of our heart is, yeah, but, then we've missed something profound and we should not walk away from that place. Stay there. Dwell. Wrestle. Fight to see him because it's only there that your Christian life can begin. And if you don't sit there at that place and feel the brokenness and gratitude wash over you, There is no other place you're going to find that freedom and peace. Nowhere. It's the only place. It's what's been missing. It's what is most needed. And so I want to give that to each of you. The gift of God to overcome all the darkness in us is the great love of God expressed to us at the foot of the cross. On the worst day of your life, you are deeply loved. When everything is bad, God still loves you and the cross still stands as his testimony. And if this world ends in a tragedy, because of him, you have an eternal security no one can steal from you. So I want to invite you now, as the praise team comes up, just to bow with me. It would be unrighteous for any preacher to shout at you, be unselfish, be unselfish, just as a matter of inner strength. Because I myself, as the preacher, don't have that strength. So I'd like all of us to return to the place where it all begins.